When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus' teaching on prayer. Uh, driven off this powerful verse, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6. And that's where I'd like to focus this morning, on that, on that verse. Um, first, I want to establish something very dear to Jesus' heart, which is that prayer is not for show. So, verse 6 begins with the word but, but when you pray. If we go back to verse 1 of chapter 6, we read, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Um, that's the governing verse of the whole chapter, Matthew, or the whole first part of the chapter, this, this chunk of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew goes on to record Jesus as having taught on three matters under this heading. The practices of giving, of prayer, which we focus on this morning, and of fasting. Do not do any of these in order to win the admiration of others, he teaches. Now, it's, it's a measure, I thought, of society's focus, of our society's focus, that only one of these, probably giving, would, in most of the developed economies, win admiration. In some cultures... Devotion to prayer is still seen as laudable. Muslim cultures being, by and large, a good example of this. But in our culture, really, the only one of giving prayer and fasting that people would look at and say, yeah, that's pretty impressive, would be potentially giving. But, of course, his point still stands. How much do we do for the kingdom of God versus how much do we do just to look good? Now, <clears throat> I just want to take a little diversion here and say... We're not speaking of well-earned praise, and we're not speaking of encouragement. And encouragement is lifeblood for us. It's very hard to carry on in a world that is bent on our destruction unless we encourage one another. Encourage one another and build each other up, the Apostle writes in 1 Thessalonians 5. And again, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, 2 Corinthians 13. The origin of the word encourage lies in cur. To encourage someone is to strengthen their heart, the French for heart, cur. And we are above all else to guard our hearts, for they are the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23. So Jesus is not talking here about encouragement, getting encouragement from the fellowship of believers. What he is talking about, the subtlety here, around not doing giving prayer and fasting, in, is, about, is about not doing them in order to win applause and admiration. So why not? You can ask, why not? What's wrong with getting applause and admiration for praying or forgiving. After all, a great actor or a musician or a great sporting competitor might justifiably do it to win applause, admiration, and fame. Hopefully Phil Foden and the rest will earn applause, admiration, and fame tonight. But Jesus specifies these things because they are personal and because they're primarily about our hearts. And remember, God looks at the heart. Giving, he says, should not be done in the view of others. Whatever you choose to give, whether it's less or more now or later, this is a matter between you and God. And when you fast, what you fast from, why you do it, the outcome you seek, these things are profoundly personal to you and God. They're not to be played out on a public stage. And prayer is of the same texture. It is not for show. It is not for show. So what is it for? What... What is prayer for and giving and fasting? Well, Jesus promises they each carry a reward 
<clears throat> Three times he repeats it, once for each of the practices. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 18. Quite a strange thought in a way. What rewards is he referring to? So each of the practices carries the potential for a very visceral reward. If we give, we may secretly hope to receive in kind. If we pray, we hope our prayer will be answered. If we fast, we hope we'll be satisfied, if only by the wonderful meal that might follow. But there is a deeper level of reward on offer to us here. It is a kingdom reward. And I want to briefly talk about the kingdom reward in two stages. There's a reward in the kingdom to come, and there's a reward in the kingdom now. The kingdom to come sounds like this. God's kingdom is coming. God's kingdom is coming just as sure as I'm standing here. And Jesus repeatedly teaches it. You will have your reward in heaven. Just one chapter ago in 5 and 12, Matthew 5 and 12, Matthew has Jesus saying in the matter of persecution, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now in the matter of prayer, Jesus is teaching a similar thing. As we pray, we are somehow laying down a deposit for ourselves. It'll be magnificent, won't it, when we come to eternity and reunited at last with our Father and with Jesus, his Son, only to recognize them profoundly and to be fully recognized in turn. The thief on the cross barely knew what he was asking when he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So that's the reward of the kingdom to come, and we know it awaits us. But there's also a reward in the kingdom now because <clears throat> we give and pray and fast because we want to see God's kingdom come on earth. We want to see his kingdom now. We were designed for Eden. We were designed for paradise, not for this world that is so fallen. Which is why, of course, in verse 10, he says, pray your kingdom come. Who among us will not love to see our world, our society operating from love? instead of from fear. Can you imagine a love-based society, a restoration of the Eden that we were built for? So prayer, we fully establish, is not for show. It is personal, profoundly personal, between us and God. And if we want to take this deeper, all we have to do is look into the heart of God. And there's a great clue in Jesus' instruction to go in and close the door. And incredibly, what I want to suggest this morning is that God's greatest desire, God's greatest desire is for intimacy with us. Our Father's desire is for closeness. He wants intimacy with each of us. He wants us to know him one-on-one, -on -one, personally. I love how the great Danish theologian Søren Kierkegaard paints the picture of God's heart for us. He uses <clears throat> excuse me, quite a famous analogy of the king who loves a humble maiden. And I'm just going to read to you now a, um, a quote from his work, Disappointed with God. And he says this, Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in a royal robe, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? 
She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden and to let shared love cross the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. So the king clothes himself as a beggar and renounces his throne in order to win her hand. The incarnation, life, and death of Jesus answers once and for all the question, what is God's heart towards me? Which is why Paul says in Romans 5, look here at the cross. Here is the demonstration of God's heart. At the point of our deepest betrayal, when we had run our fathers from him and got so lost in the woods we could never find our way home, God came and died to rescue us. This is God's heart for us. His heart is to know us one-on-one. -on -one. His heart is for a closeness that is equal and personal. So back in our verse 6, go into the room, close the door, is exactly what we do when we want a private conversation. I was visited by an old friend the other night, and we wanted a private conversation, and we went away into my study where there happened to be a nice fire, thank heaven, the rest of the house was freezing, and we shut the door. And we had a private conversation. And my wonderful family knew not, not to step in just for that half hour. And Jesus says, and pray. To whom? To our Father. To the God who spoke the universe into being, but who is incredibly seeking intimacy with us. And who is unseen, Jesus says. Which is a beautiful contrast with verse 5, where Jesus names the spirit of hypocrisy. They do it in public to be seen by others. We are to stay in private to converse intimately away from the crowd, seen only by the great unseen God who is our Father. And then we receive our reward, and the kingdom takes another step. <clears throat> How does the kingdom come on earth? It comes in the hearts of people. It comes in the hearts of people because once God has someone's heart, then their behaviors follow, and soul by soul and silently, the shining bounds of the kingdom increase. So as we pray, our own hearts become more and more intertwined with his. Our light shines ever brighter and the kingdom grows. A beautiful image. A beautiful image. But I wouldn't be honest if I didn't point out before we close that it's, there is a battle that rages against us even in this context. And this, my friends, is the battle for our hearts. Have you noticed how hard it is to pray regularly? I don't know if it's uh, any different for you than it is to me, but to keep regular times or even to carve out space to be with God, to be with our Father, because the enemy dreads that we will be intimate with God. The enemy dreads that. He will do everything he can to disrupt it, to sideline us, and he'll partner with the world to achieve his aim. Since the kingdom of God comes in the hearts of people, the battle for those hearts rages strong. Just a few thoughts and observations to help us be aware and alert to how the enemy will try to keep us from praying. I notice three things, three spirits that come against us. There are many more, I'm sure, but here are my three. 
They are confusion, distraction, and seduction. So confusion is the long-term strategic play of the enemy. We encounter confusion about prayer. We're feeling distant from our Father. So can we pray? Well, of course we can, but we just feel we can't. I often feel distant because I just haven't had intimate prayer for some time or because I have a nagging doubt that I'm worthy of God's attention. So it spirals. I feel distant, so I don't pray, so I feel distant. So what do we do here? Well, the answer is to stand in the truth of God. Of course, I am. Of course, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy in myself, which is exactly why Jesus came, to make me worthy. And the work of Jesus is fact and stands forever. So all is well. All is well whether I feel it or not. And this is, importantly, this is objective truth against subjective truth. So subjectively, I feel distant from God. Objectively, Jesus died for me. Done. It's done. It's done. So it doesn't matter how I feel about it. It's done. Step in. Pray. That's the confusion that the enemy sows. That's, then the next thing is he does distraction. Distraction for me is what takes my eyes off the prize. It's a more tactical play. Many things distract us from deepening our relationship with God. Even the great kingdom work that we do does that. I, hear, I haven't got time to pray. I've got a sermon to write. You know, right? I haven't got time to pray. I've got an exam tomorrow. Or whatever it is. So what do we do? Well, you'll have your own principles, I'm sure. My, uh, the best thing I find to do is to simply speak the name of Jesus. I just bring him into everything. So I'm cleaning the kitchen, I'm driving to collect my kids, I'm catching a train to London, I'm walking into a client's office. I just bring Jesus all the time into my thinking and my questioning and my conversations because all of it belongs to God. And then when eventually I flop down at the end of a busy day, guess what? There he is. And he's been with me all the time. So bring him even in the distractions, counterintuitively, and he'll be there. And the final, uh, the third one of the three for me is seduction. And what I mean by this is somehow uh, I tend to lose sight of God at the very last minute, the, like the moment critique, as it were. So it's worth noticing how often we feel fear or anxiety when we look to the future, or the future consequences of what we're doing now. And the danger is we get seduced into imagining a future where we're alone. But actually, he will always be there with us, and nothing can prevent that. So we can leave the future to him, because well, he'll always be there, whatever we encounter. And so we can come back to enjoying the present. So that's how we defeat seduction. So confusion, distraction, and seduction. We need to be aware of them and be alert. In fact, I would say we need to be these four things. I'm going to leave you with this thought. We need to be alert, honest, intentional, and open. Alert, honest, intentional, and open. Peter famously writes, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How do we remain alert? It's not as simple as you might think. It's a practice I like to call getting on my balcony. I just take time to look at myself and say, How are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? On, on, how are you on track? Are you, are you, are you praying? You're not praying? Naming Jesus, you're not naming Jesus, just be alert, just notice where you are. Be honest. Be honest. We cannot fool God, and we shouldn't even try. If we believe in him, and we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, 
as Paul teaches in, in Romans 5. This means that God is inside of us. The children of God live by the Spirit of God. So he knows us fully, and he understands everything we face. He understands our temptations, trials, limitations, the confusion, distraction, and seduction that we're under. He understands it all. So we can be honest with him. We don't have to pretend to be something we're not. Be intentional. If we reach out with real intention for our Father, we'll find him. Jeremiah 29, 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, when you seek me with your whole heart. And finally, be open. Just when we're tempted to feel in the battle that he's beyond our reach, we discover that actually God is the one who's pursuing us, not the other way around. Isn't that great? God is the one who pursues us. He pursues me, not the other way around. So I'm just going to, by way of encouragement, leave the last word to the contemporary author Simon Tugwell in his book, Prayer, about how Jesus pursues us. He writes this. So long as we imagine that it is we who have to look for God, we must often lose heart. That is the other way around. He is looking for us. And so we can afford to recognize that very often we are not looking for God. Far from it. We are in full flight from him, in high rebellion against him. And he knows that and has taken it into account. He has followed us into our own darkness. There where we thought finally to escape him, we run straight into his arms. So we do not have to erect a false piety for ourselves to give us the hope of salvation. Our hope is in his determination to save us and he will not give in. We can and must pray because God always wins his battles, which means he always wins our hearts. Amen. Oh,